Good morning, everybody. Man, I'm thankful to see you. Good to be with family. Open the scriptures. Grab your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be talking about the importance of investing in people. And while you're turning your Bibles, I'll remind you that you've got a great opportunity to invest in people coming up. This fall, we'll be sending out teams of three people into the community to offer opportunities to welcome people to church and to share the gospel with them for evangelism. Inside your bulletin, you found a card where you can learn more about that opportunity on Thursday nights. You can go out with us, be part of our evangelism teams and our outreach teams. You can learn more about that using that card, or you can sign up using that card. For the next couple of weeks, we'll be asking you to think about that, and we look forward to getting started very soon. So I hope you guys will pay attention to that. We're in the middle of a sermon series that we're calling Invest, Engage, and Invite. And the, the heart of this sermon series is a reminder to the church that people matter. In fact, they matter most. In God's mission, what He cares about is people. He cares about people more than buildings. He cares about people more than programs. God is busy right now moving all throughout the Pine Belt in your lives and in the lives of people just like you and I all around us. And our sermon series called Invest, Engage, Invite is a reminder to the church that the heartbeat of our work together should be that we invest in people's lives, that we engage them well for the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what it takes, and that we invite them, that we invite them to join us in our homes, at our dinner tables, in our Sunday school classes, at church for worship, and certainly that we invite them to ask Jesus Christ to be their Savior and give their lives to Him so they can be part of His family. Invest, Engage, Invite. It's a sermon series designed to help us do our mission, to help us think about it. And today, we are talking about investing. Now, I'm not a great investor, but get ready for a sermon on investing. So let's pray together. Father, I love you. I thank you for this church family, for my brothers and my sisters who've gathered today. Lord, I know that surrounding every one of us, there are hundreds of people that you're working in. Some people that only we really could break through with. And God, I pray that you'd help us to invest in them. That you'd open our eyes to the opportunity. That you'd inspire us, push us. God, that you'd show us the people this week that we're supposed to be investing in for you. And God, I pray that your spirit would lead us through every obstacle and excuse that we give. So that we would be busy this week making extraordinary investments in the lives of people. Children, senior adults, busy families, singles, our co-workers, our friends. We ask for your grace over us and your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, so we're going to talk a few minutes about investing as we get ready to take some advice from Jesus on investing. But in order to do that, first, I just want to acknowledge I'm not the best investor, but some of you guys are. Some of you, you check your phone every morning to see what the stock market's doing, don't you? you you're watching to see if you can still retire on time, or you're still grieving the market crash a decade ago that's made it hard for you to retire. But we know the importance of investing. We invest our time, our money, or our resources in things on earth, hoping that they give a good return. And I, and I bet a lot of times they do. Some of you guys are, are wizards at this. You're brilliant investors. God's given you resources. You're doing awesome things with it. Hey, in this sermon, I want to say keep it up. Keep it up. But let me share with you, I think, a good example of a fantastic investment. So I don't know a ton, 
about what stocks to watch. You know, in Sugarlock, in Sugarlock we didn't really uh, get to buy into the lumber mill. So, I, you know, I didn't get home training on this. But a good stock for a great example of an investment that I wish I'd made, Apple. December 12th, 1980. December 12th, 1980, Apple stock hit the market. If you'd wanted to invest in this risky little company from the West Coast, all right? They hit the market at $28.75 a share. Today, they're up essentially 1,980%. That's not bad, but the highest point that they've ever reached was 2,342% increase, and that was in September of 2012. Just a little comparison on your in investment. If you'd bought in... In 1980, December 12th, 1980, if you'd bought in at $28.75, then at that high water mark in 2012, your stock would have been worth $702. Did you catch that? So like 30 bucks, 700 bucks. Show me the magic so that I can turn 30 bucks into 700 bucks and I'll take it. That's how investment works, I guess what we're hoping for. But what I want to talk today is about a different kind of investment, not investing a little bit of money in hopes that you'll have more money. I want to ask you to invest your life, your money, your time, your talents, your skills and abilities, your resources, your kitchen table, your recipes, your deer camp. I want you to invest whatever God gave you. And I want you to invest in the lives of people around you so that you can watch not financial increase, but you can watch eternal impact. You can see kingdom of heaven growth. So in 1980, if I put a little bit of money into Apple, well, here we are almost 40 years after that, I would have a lot of money. Well, what about us as a church if we invest in people in the Pine Belt for the next 40 years? How many lives will be changed? Not, 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 not talking about money. I'm talking about something way more important than money. So invest and engage and invite. If we're going to be able to share the gospel with people, if we're going to be able to impact their families, change their home, shift their future, open their heart to the loving God that we've come to know, the first step is we're going to have to invest in them. Nobody wants to hear what we have to say about God or the gospel until they realize that we love them and that it works. And so the first step for us to be useful for King Jesus is that we've got to die to ourselves, get over our selfishness, and begin investing in people. So probably the first thing that we need to do this morning all across the church is open our minds to allow God to start building a list for you, a list in your mind of the people that He wants you to invest in this year, of the 8th graders the fifth graders, or the people inside your household. Maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your child, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your mother, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's some kids on a soccer team you're about to coach. But how can you invest in them so that you can have a kingdom of heaven impact down, down the line? So if you could check the stock future 40 years from now, you would see that they were following Jesus, they had peace in their heart, the Holy Spirit guarding them. Wouldn't that be awesome? So we're going to talk about that. There's a parable in Luke chapter 16. Would you turn to this parable in Luke chapter 16? Here's a parable that Jesus preached. I think it's a fantastic parable. This parable that Jesus preached in Luke chapter 16 is 
Bible scholars admit that it's one of the most difficult parables that Jesus taught. It's really peculiar because one of the characters in the story is a dishonest person. And so don't lose sight of the steps, but let me read this parable. I'll tell you how this dishonest manager teaches us a lesson about how we could live our lives better for the Lord. Here we go. Here's the story. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So the setting of the story is very simple. There's a wealthy person. God's blessed him. He's got lots of resources. News has come to him that he's got a manager that works for him, a steward of his estates, who has wasted his money. So before we even have this sermon proper, I guess, let's all just do a little bit of uh, heart searching for a second. God's given you tons of resources. You are a steward of the talents and the time and the energy, the resources that he's given you. Are you wasting them? Like, is, are there reports trickling up to God right now about how Ben Skipper is wasting the opportunity that God gave him to pastor this church? Or from your household, are there, are there reports trickling up to heaven that God has let you manage his world for a minute, but you, you're right now, you're wasting it. Now, in 20 minutes, you're going to have that fixed, but right now, you're not making the most of what God's given you. Would that be true of you? Like, would somebody say right now that the time, talents, and resources God's given you, that they're not being put to use today as well as they could be and should be for His glory? Maybe you're like me and you've gotten busy or distracted. Maybe you just haven't opened your mind to what God wanted you to do. Or maybe you just sort of thought it was a Sunday school teacher's job to do spiritual things and you forgot that you were called by God to do spiritual things. But as this parable begins, there's a master who hears that his manager is wasting the resources that he's supposed to oversee. And that's probably how a lot of us start this sermon. Verse 2, so he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. In the scripture where it says give an account of your management, I think it's probably more along the lines of give me the account of your management. That is, give me the books. I want you to go out and find the, the ledger of all the debts that our renters owe us of what, and bring it, turn it in because you're fired. Your job's done, so go bring me the books that give the account, that tell the story, that show how you spent your life, your energy, your time. Bring me the books, you're done. And so the manager has to go and get the books. Now this creates a problem for the guy. Here's what we find out in verse 3. The manager said to himself, Oh man, that's not in your Bible. but What should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. He's worried, what am I going to do next? I'm a wimp. I can't go out and do manual labor. I got some pride, so when he kicks me out of his house and I no longer work in his estate, I don't want to go beg. What can I do? And everybody tune in for a second. What can I do so that the next phase of my life isn't a crash and burn? What can I do right now to make sure that the next season of my life goes okay for me? He asks. So here we go, verse Verse 4, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. All right, so now he's made a plan. What he knows so far 
is that the master fired him because he'd been wasting the master's resources. But the second thing he knows is that already, so far, the master has been merciful. The one thing he knows about the master is that he is merciful. He fired him, yes, because the master expects an accurate judgment and he calls you to account. But he was merciful. He fired you, but he didn't put you in jail. He fired you, but he didn't make you return the money that you squandered. He fired him, but he could have done so much worse. Well, knowing that he's got a merciful master, he said, you know what? I know how I can play my master's mercy to my advantage. And he does. He does. Let me show you his plan. Verse 5. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. These debtors are probably people who rent land from the master and they raise orchards, grow crops, and they have a prosperous agricultural economy and they have to pay the master here in order to do so. In other words, the landowners that are called in in the story, they owe some pretty big debts. To have that much money back and forth between them, they're doing pretty good business. So these are pretty wealthy people. Here we go. He asks the first one, how much do you owe my master? Verse 6, 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, okay, take your bill, sit down quickly, 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 and make it 450. In other words, cut it in half. It's your handwriting, I need you to do it, but make it half of what you owe him. In other words, are you telling me that I'm fixing to get to rent the land, I'm going to make the same amount of money, but I'm going to give your master half of what I thought the contract was going to be? <laughs> Hand me the book, buddy! So the next guy, to the second he said, how much, uh, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. All right, the manager told him, all right, take your bill, make it 800. And this guy's, wow, that's great. A 20% benefit to me? Absolutely, hand, hand me that book. And we get the idea that he goes to all the master's major debtors, all these estate holders that live on the master's plantations, and he, and he does this kind of settling. That, why? Because remember... All this guy wants to do is make the last chapter of his life better. He's fired. He knows it. And when he turns the books into the master and he gets kicked out of the house, he wants a place to land that's not too bad. So keep in mind, the end game for this guy is just how do I get the next chapter of my life established? He's not worried about making any money right now. He's making zero profit. All of this is the master's money. He's just trying to figure out how to make sure he can use any resource he has to survive what's coming. Now the parable gets interesting in verse 8 because here comes the master again, that merciful master. The master commended the dishonest manager. Now I want you to pause because we all would say, why is he commending him? And I'll explain that in a minute. He's not saying that the manager made a good financial decision. He is not saying that the manager was a moral person and he'd love to hire him back. Nope, you've already wasted enough of my money. You know you're fired. But he did have to say, you got me, you got me. And I'll explain in just a minute why that commendation, what he did that was shrewd. But let me finish verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. And then here's a little statement that Jesus gives all of us that we probably should remember. He said this, 
For the people of this world that is materially minded, earthbound folks, they are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light, that is the Jesus people. And he walks away from the parable with that example. So let me explain what just happened. And we'll see if we can learn something about how to invest in people better this week as we go around the pine belt together. So here's what happened. The man knows that he's about to be kicked out of the master's house. He knows that he can't dig. He knows that he can't beg. He's got to have a place to land. His best hope is to attach himself to some other fairly prosperous person and say, I've got some background as a manager. Can I manage your estate? I know that I don't manage the master's, but I used to work for him. If I could handle that, I could handle your business. How's he going to get in good with them? He begins cutting everybody's bill. So now everybody loves him because he was the point of the spear, the agent of good news. And here's the, here's the conundrum. Now the master's a little bit stuck because we live in first century Mediterranean world in a village context where everybody knows everybody. Before he even gets out to lunch, word has spread all around the community that the master has just given everybody like their benefit checks. He just said, you, it's half for you. It's 80% for you. The master's reputation just skyrocketed. He is, like, he's getting so many likes on first century Facebook, he can't count them, right? He, there's Pinterest popping up about, you know, we're going to have a party for the master and it's going to look like this. Right now, the master, because he was merciful in the first phase, this guy's gone out as a broker of that mercy, and now the master... He's got the best reputation of anybody. in town. He's the most popular, most liked, most loved man in the community. So he's got two choices, right? He can either say, you shrewd rascal. Well, you're still fired, but okay. That was a good one. And now that man goes off and finds one of those people who likes him and says, I'm looking for work. And he gets a job. And listen carefully, the last phase of his life goes better. He made a nest for himself. Good job. The other option the master has is not a good one. The master can say, whoa, 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 whoa. I am not giving my money up that easily. Everybody listen. Everybody listen. I don't care what Leon told you this afternoon. I fired Leon this morning at breakfast. He didn't have to give me the money back. But then everybody's popping the balloons that they're putting up for him. I mean, the party planning, yep, nope, goes to the pits, right? So the master's kind of in a tough spot because his social reputation has already been leveraged. And now for him to say, give me the money back, he would be the least popular guy in town. So it worked. It's almost like one of the old Aesop's fables or something where the the shrewd steward outsmarted his master. And the master has no choice except to commend him for his shrewdness and say, man, I'm glad I'm getting another manager. But what Jesus wanted us to learn is this. People like this guy. They're smart. They know how to take care of themselves financially in a worldly market. They know how to invest so that their future will be better. People of this age are more shrewd than the people who are the children of the light. And I think what Jesus is trying to teach us is that Imagine that story in a positive light. Instead of a dishonest manager, imagine an honest believer. And imagine that instead of trying to just make you know, the next stage of your life better, you're trying to make eternal destinations matter. And your investment's not to put a little bit of money in and see how well you can make that for yourself at the end. Rather, 
you're investing everything you've got for the kingdom. So the way this parable works, Jesus wants to stimulate that we're not talking about investing a little bit of money for a financial gain. We are invi- we're talking about investing the gospel. You give your life away to people so that they can accept Christ and grow in the kingdom. You're not talking about a financial investment. You are talking about an eternal investment. And Jesus basically says, people like this manager know how to manipulate money so it can work for them. I wish believers could leverage their lives for eternal purposes with the same skill and intensity that money managers can leverage finances and tax rules for financial purposes. And that causes all of us to stop and think about, well, what are you investing your life in today? What people? Who will be impacted? Now, I want you to stop and think about this, too. This parable, it's not really telling you how to manage money. There's nothing that this man did that was right with money. It was immoral. He's dishonest. The thing this parable is supposed to make you think of is this. Gang, we get about 80 years if we're lucky. And after that, all of this is gone. And we stand before our maker. And we prepare for the new heaven and the new earth and the age to come. What can we do in this season of our life? So that when we enter that season of our life, the next age, we stand before our maker and we are surrounded by friends and a proud master. Is there anything that we can be doing today so that when we wake up on the other side of eternity and we stand with the Lord, we have made the next chapter of our life ready for us? I don't know about you, but this guy was hoping that after the master took the books and fired him and he was done that he would have a place to stay that that next season would work and I don't know about you but I know that I want to move into the next season of my life one day when I draw my last breath and I face my judgment I want to move into that surrounded by brothers and sisters by people who say thanks I want to look at the face of King Jesus and hear well done good and faithful servant now let me ask all of us a second question All right, if we keep investing our lives the way we're investing them right now, is that going to happen? I mean, I guess we could ask a financial question first. So if you keep investing financially exactly the same way you're investing right now, are you going to be able to retire? You know, will you be a millionaire one day? Whatever your goals are, are you going to meet them? If you financially keep doing what you're doing, how's it going to work out for you in the long run? I don't know. But now use that template and ask yourself the spiritual question. If we keep leveraging our families exactly the same as we are right now, who's going to come into heaven with us one day because of that? If we keep going to eighth grade every day with the same attitude and goals that we currently have, who's going to come into heaven one day with us because of that? If we continue investing as a parent exactly the same way we are right now, our, our goals and values being what they are, whether they're spiritual or material, if we keep on the same track we're, we are right now, will our kids escort us into the kingdom of heaven one day? When we show up with the Lord, will we have eternal friends and a proud master? In verse 9, Jesus tells you what this parable teaches. He says this, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The parable is eschatological. 
It's about the age to come. It's about what's next. And I just want to stop and ask everybody here today, who can you invest in this week? Would God build a list in your head of people who are worth your time and your energy? Now, you know, I, I got to thinking about who'd be good at investing. And I was going to bring my investment portfolio to you today, but the sticky on the back of the post-it note apparently wore off and it fell and I can't find it, and that's my whole portfolio. So I brought, so I brought Brother Hogan's. You know, Brother Hogan's been saving money since Moses got him out of Egypt. He's still got the earrings that the Egyptians were giving them when they were leaving. He's still got them. So I brought, I brought Leland Merton Hogan's investment portfolio, and I thought, you know, the best way for me to really kind of bring this sermon home for Carterville is for us to learn from the master, right? So if you want to invest in Apple or something good like that, I think you should. So let's go ahead and get busy with our investments, right? And I got to thinking about, what if you invest for the next 40 years or so, not in Apple, but in people, in people? And so I just, I don't know, just thinking about it, I thought, well, in February 19th, 2012, Rachel Russell paid back dividends when she was baptized into the kingdom of heaven because Brother Hogan had been investing gospel seeds since her birth. I thought that's fun. I've got Stephen Jordan in 2011. Just flipping through here, I see Riley Moore in 2009. I see Summer Harrell in 2010. Oh, Mitchell Carley in 2005. And there's Patrick Culpepper. Pat, we may need to baptize you again, buddy, just to make sure it sticks. <laughs> Kyle Giacona. Right there about old Patrick. Here's Neely McCrary. Right here. I see Kyle Sullivan. I remember that day. As I flip through Brother Hogan's investment portfolio, I can't find any bank statements. I don't know how much money, but I see Aaron Watkins in 2002, right next to Gilbert Luckle right there. There's Emily Evans. I see Carol O'Neill in 91. That's a long time ago, Carol. I see Courtney Mitchell, 1990. I, I could keep going, right? <laughs> I, I don't care if I die with any money. I don't care. But God knows that I want to go into my eternal reward, having leveraged it for the kingdom. I know I want to be surrounded by friends and my family and a proud master. And if I could learn to invest like that, you can have my Apple stock. I want people. And what keeps me from it? I don't know. I'm lazy or I'm busy or I'm tired or distracted. Or maybe I skipped my quiet time in the morning. I didn't pray, pray and ask God who to look for today. Or maybe my wife and I just have never sat down and made a good list of who we need to be intentionally investing in. But what if you made a plan? What if you recognized who they were? And what if you committed in the next year of your life to invest in people? This parable tells us nothing about how to invest your money. This parable tells us everything about how to use everything you can get your hands on in this world to make it better for all of us in the eternal and I just want to challenge us to be that church. I want to challenge us as a, as a church family that we would commit to make people 
matter. And so we've got a poem that follows this parable, and the poem tells us that we can't serve both God and money. The poem that Jesus teaches right after this parable tells us that if you've been faithful with small things, God will give you more things. So I just want to call you out wherever you are right now. If you're teaching Sunday school, teach it well. If you've got two kids under your roof that you're discipling, disciple them well. If you've got one neighbor that's moved in, well, make it matter. If you've got one customer today, make a difference. Be faithful in small things. And as God sees you, the faithful steward, not the unfaithful one, He'll give you more and more to manage until the kingdom of heaven begins to grow and expand on your investments. And we know that one day everything will be different. And it won't matter if you hit heaven without a cent in your bank account. Game's over. But if you can waltz into that place surrounded by family and friends and with one proud master, then you invested well. And this parable and that little poem, it gives me a purpose. I want us to be a church that will live on mission. I want you to start today your own Kingdom of Heaven investment portfolio. I want you to watch the baptism waters stirred year after year. I want you to sow seeds of the gospel in the lives of people. I want you to begin to intentionally look for people. We would fill the sanctuary twice over if every one of us in our junior colleges, in our high school campuses, at our workplaces, and in our hobbies fields, if we invested well in the lives of people. Not a sermon to make anybody feel guilty. It's an opportunity. Jesus, the stockbroker, just walked into Carterville Baptist Church and told us how to make an investment that you could never lose on. I wish somebody had come to us December the 11th of 1980 and said, there's a company in California that you need to buy stock in today. You'll be glad you did. Well, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is coming to Carterville Baptist Church and he said, I want to tell you about an investment that you absolutely cannot go wrong with. You spend everything you've got. Your money, your time, your energy, your reputation, your hospitality, your talents, your skills, your abilities, and your opportunities. Your Little League baseball teams, your YMCA soccer teams, your seat in ninth grade. You leverage everything you've got and invest in the people around you. And one day it will pay off. It'll pay off a reward that is literally out of this world. Church, I want to ask you to pray with me and let's think about what God wants us to do today. As you're bowing your heads, I'll give our worship team a second. She's simply just going to ask God to search our hearts and show us what we need to do. And I hope that if there's anybody in the sanctuary this morning who's heard this sermon and it made you think about eternal things and you know that you've not asked Jesus for forgiveness, as a church, we'd love to welcome you into the kingdom. We'd love to walk with you as you pray for salvation, as you're baptized, and as you join us in the kingdom. So if that's you today, then what you need to do at church this morning in response is you simply need to pray and ask Jesus for salvation. Let us celebrate baptism with you. But for the rest of you, probably what you need to do today is you need to just do your business with God and covenant with Him that you will not waste His resources. You won't be an unfaithful steward. You'll manage them well. You'll invest in people. 
Maybe God will even give you the names of people. Maybe he'll even help you think of your list. Maybe your lunchtime conversation needs to be, well, who does he want us to invest in? Let's pray as you think about that. Father, I ask for your blessing today as a church family. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to invest well in the lives of people. God, I pray that you would allow us to be faithful. You've been faithful to us. Lord, you sent people to invest in the gospel in us, family members or teachers or pastors or strangers. And here we are, and God will stand before you one day, free and innocent and saved because of it. And I ask you now, Lord, pour out your spirit on our church family so that we can make those investments, so that we, Lord, could invest our lives in people, we could put our time into people, and we could watch you bring people out of darkness and into light. God, I pray you teach us. We've learned some bad habits. Father, we have no idea how to do this well. And I pray, God, that you'd lead us, that you'd break us of our bad habits, that you'd teach us, that you'd convict us, that you'd inspire us. As a church, Lord, let us fill the baptistry. Let us fill the pews in the Sunday school classes and our kitchens with the people that you are changing for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. And Lord, let us be your managers, your stewards, your brokers, your investors. It's our honor. We thank you for that in Jesus' name.